when I was younger growing up in church, there's an old song that, um, this song that people would sing. I'm not going to sing it. Though some of you were hoping I would. It's, um, the song says, I know I've been changed. The angels in heaven. You know what I'm talking about, Bob? There you go, okay. The angels in heaven done signed my name. I know I've been changed. Indeed, the Christian life is a life that has indeed been changed. Those old songs, they are emotionally stirring indeed, but and oftentimes they they lack a certain biblical and, and, and theological strength. But there is a truth in that song that should remind us all that the Christian life is a changed life. And we have been changed. If you are a Christian this morning, then you should be different. You should be different. There should be a change in your life. There is a transformation that has taken place. You have new desires, new attitude, a new language, a new name, a new song, a new home. You have a new destination because you are of a new mind. You have a new citizenship. Because you have been promised new bodies. It's because you belong to a new kingdom. We are citizens of a new kingdom. It is a kingdom that has been forged through the blood and the sweat of Jesus Christ. It is a kingdom constructed on righteousness and built for us and established in a right relationship with the king. It is the kingdom that Jesus came to bring to the earth. It is a kingdom that Jesus was to manifest on earth as it is in heaven. It is a kingdom whose king is Jesus. It is a kingdom of, transforma- of transformation. It is a kingdom of transformative power. It is this kingdom that Jesus manifests to the disciples as they are on that mountain in Mark chapter 9 this morning. It transforms in righteousness. The Bible says that six days after Jesus had been with his disciples and Peter had made that grand confession of that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Son of God, that the teaching that Jesus had been performing up to that point, that the miracles that Jesus had been performing up to that point, 
Peter somehow by the spirit of God, the Bible tells us, was revealed to him and he spoke those words of confession. Jesus, you are the Christ. You are the son of God. But Jesus, knowing all things and knowing the hearts and the minds of his disciples, know that for them, they are actually probably just, it is an intellectual understanding. But what Jesus is going to do on the Mount of Transfiguration is make that understanding experiential. So that before they heard who Jesus was. But now, they're going to see. They're going to see on the mountain what Peter confessed. That Jesus indeed is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He calls them up onto the mountain. Mountains play a prominent role in the ministry of Jesus does it not? We are told that not only does he call his disciples on the mountain for this grand display of his majesty and his power, but Jesus in calling his disciples called them initially on the mountain. He prayed upon the mountain in Mark chapter 6 and verse six, uh, 46. He preached on the mountain in chapter 3 and verse 13. He performed miracles upon the mountain in John chapter 6 and verse 3. The Bible says that he was tempted on the mountain in Mark chapter 4 and and verse 8. In Matthew chapter 4 and verse 8. And indeed in Mark chapter 14 and verse 26, we are told that it is upon the mountain that Jesus prayed And entered into his passion, his suffering for his people. He did that upon the mountain. And so we see here this morning in John and and Mark chapter 9 that Jesus is once again up on the mountain. And this time he takes his disciples up upon the mountain. Why? Why the mountain? We are not exactly sure, but it could be. That is upon the mountain that you get a clear view of all that is happening around you. And perhaps it is on the mountain that Jesus is going to give them the clearest view of all of who he is. On the mount, they will get the greatest view of all. He calls to himself Peter, James, and John. We know at this time that Jesus has called 12 apostles, but for some reason, Jesus picks Peter, James, and John, and they've become known to us as the inner circle. That Jesus loved and cared for all of his disciples, but there seemed to have been a special relationship with Peter, James, and, and John, and so Jesus takes them his inner circle, and he takes them up upon the mountain with him. Interesting enough that Peter, James, and John are often prominent among the disciples. They were the first ones called to be disciples. Whenever the list of the disciples are mentioned, they always begin with Peter, James, and John. 
They are the ones who came with Jesus. We remember earlier when he raised Jairus' daughter. Who entered into there with Jesus but Peter, James, and John? When Jesus goes to pray in Gethsemane, when he will agonize about his pending crucifixion, he takes with him out, out in the garden to pray. Who does he take with him but Peter, James, and John? And you read through the book of Acts and the initial stages of the church, the apostles who are most prominent pillars of the church in Jerusalem, indeed the early church, are Peter, James, and John. And in the last chapter, was it not Peter who was the one who actually spoke up and gave the confession, spoke on behalf of the apostles and gave the confession, identifying who Jesus was, that he is the Christ. And now it will be Peter, along with James and John, who will see just what Peter confessed. The Bible says that as they went up the mountain, they went and they went upon the mountain to pray. We see this in Luke's account. That they were there to pray. And as they were praying, suddenly Jesus was transfigured. He was transformed. The Greek word there is metamorpho. Literally, we get the word metamorphosis. Comes from the Greek word meta, which means change, and morphe, which means form. And that Jesus literally before their faces transformed. He changed form. It's a complete makeover. It is a complete change. You see this also in Romans chapter 12 and verse 2. When we are not to be conformed to the world, the Bible says, but we are to be transformed. That there needs to be a metamorphosis of our minds and our understanding related to who we are and who we are as we engage the world. That there should be a change. Jesus doesn't just tell disciples that they're going to be different. He shows them. He shows them. Right before their eyes, he is transformed. We see this when a caterpillar is changed, do we not? We speak of metamorphosis when we think of a caterpillar as the caterpillar becomes a butterfly. You remember the little poem from elementary school perhaps you don't I will remind you of it <laughs> caterpillar caterpillar crawl 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 don't fall off the garden wall caterpillar caterpillar eat 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 grow so fat on your furry feet caterpillar caterpillar rest 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 soon you'll change to be the best caterpillar caterpillar try 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 one day you'll be the best butterfly you remember that one, do you? Oh, poor you. 
and we see the butterfly and we ask ourselves, how could that butterfly have ever been a caterpillar? That's the, that's the idea that the disciples are saying. They've been with Jesus for almost three, over three years now. They know Jesus. They've walked with Jesus. They've talked with Jesus. They've been into intimate conversation and places where nobody has ever been with Jesus. They've ate with Jesus. They've slept with Jesus. They've been through the storms with Jesus. They think they know Jesus and suddenly... They say, is that Jesus? Transformed. They're totally amazed. His clothes, the Bible says, become a radiant, pure white, whitened beyond white they had ever seen. Bleached beyond the abilities of humans to bleach. Bleached beyond anything that tide can do. Bleached beyond anything that Clorox could do. If you like us and can't afford tide. Anything that Purex can do. <laughs> Somebody know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Clean. White. Beyond anything that they had ever seen before. The idea is a whiteness beyond description. It is a light in its purest form. It is pure light. You know what the Bible says about God? The Bible says, not only says that God is love and God is holy. But you know the Bible says that God is light. In his purest form. That he is a magnificent brilliance. And again and again in the Old Testament. When God appears. He appears as light. A blinding. Radiant. Pure. Light. His glory is an illuminating and even blinding light. So we see that the glory of God, the light, the radiant, illuminating, brilliant, blinding light of God is manifested on the face of Jesus. In the clothing of Jesus. But not just in his faith and in his, not just in his countenance and not just in his clothing. But it's also in his company. For who suddenly appears with Jesus? But Moses and Elijah. The transformation is not just about his clothes, but it's also about his company. For suddenly there appears with Jesus two companions who apparently they just appeared out of nowhere. Apparently in similar light and similar clothing are Moses and Elijah. And Luke tells us in Luke chapter 9 and verse 31 of this account that they were speaking with Jesus. 
And they spoke with Jesus concerning his departure. They spoke with Jesus concerning his exodus. Concerning the fact that Jesus now has set his face toward Jerusalem. That Jesus has set his face toward the cross. And Moses and Elijah are there on the mountain. In the glory of God. Conversing with Jesus about our Lord's death and resurrection. Apparently, they knew why Jesus had come. And like Jesus makes mention of Abraham in and, and John chapter 8, that Abraham rejoiced to see his day. Apparently, Moses and Elijah too had joined in on that rejoicing band. Now upon the Mount of Transfiguration, they are speaking with Jesus. Surely of the joys, even the sorrows of his death. And yet the glory of his resurrection. Naturally, naturally, when the, when the disciples see this, they are afraid. And perhaps in trying to calm himself and to calm James and John, Peter decides to speak again. He speaks presumptuously and he says, Lord, Lord, master, teacher, rabbi, let's, let's build temples. Let's build tabernacles. Let's build places of worship right here on this mountain in honor of Jesus and Moses and Elijah. Now, before we be too hard on Peter, if we're honest, we know that Fear not only makes cowards of us all, but often makes us foolish. When we are afraid, we will do some foolish things. When we are afraid, we will say foolish things. And many times they're far more foolish than what Peter says. But indeed, what Peter does say is foolish. Bible says he said that because he didn't know what to say he didn't know what to say he was speechless but you know Peter isn't speechless for most of us when we don't know what to say we're just speechless but when Peter doesn't know what to say he speaks Impressed, impressed with Moses, impressed with Elijah, impressed with Jesus. Peter wants to put Moses and Elijah on par with Jesus. But notice that God the Father will not have any of that. And so suddenly he speaks. Peter, now that you've had your say, now listen to me. Suddenly a cloud engulfs them all. And the voice from heaven says, this, speaking of Jesus, this is my beloved son. You listen to him. This is my beloved son. You listen to him. And suddenly, the Bible says that Moses is gone. Elijah is gone. And the disciples look up. 
And there is Jesus only. Jesus only. As if to clear up all the confusion, God not only speaks, but then God takes away Moses. God takes away Elijah. And he leaves standing before the disciples, Jesus only. Here is God reminding them, he reminding us all that it is not Moses plus Jesus. It is not Elijah plus Jesus. It is Jesus only. It is the exclusivity of Jesus that we proclaim. You know, you know, actually, the world does not have a problem with Jesus. You see that at Christmas time. They sing all his songs. The world doesn't have a problem with Jesus. What the world has a problem with is Jesus only. It's the exclusivity of Jesus. It's the uniqueness of Jesus. There is no problem as long as you don't say Jesus only. But yet, beloved, this is what the Bible does say. This is what we do proclaim. We proclaim the exclusivity of Jesus. There is no other way but Jesus. We don't claim that on our own. We claim that because that's what the Bible says. John chapter 14 and verse 6, Jesus himself says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No one except Jesus only. In Acts chapter 4 and, and verse 12, the Bible says, and there is salvation in no one else. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 2, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus and him crucified. Because it is Jesus only. Beloved, not only are we saved by Jesus, but we are saved by Jesus only. And that is an important distinction to make because if you tell people that you're saved by Jesus, they'll say, oh, that's fine. That's cool. That's cool for you. That's the way you want to go about it. If that's your thing, then that's okay. And you remind them, no, not only am I saved by Jesus, but no one is saved apart from Jesus, for you are saved only by Jesus. And that's where the rub comes. Because there are no two ways of salvation. There is Jesus and there is hell. Those are your only two options this morning. It is Jesus or it is hell. And if you are not ready, if you are not willing to listen to Jesus and to follow him, you cannot and you will not be saved. You must. You must have Jesus. This is what the disciples saw 
on the mountain. This is the revelation that God is giving to them. This is the manifestation of the Christ. And there is no one else besides the Christ. This is what they saw, beloved. They saw Jesus. And they saw the glory of God. What they saw on the mountain there is what they actually had been hearing all along. Ever since the first time they began to walk and talk with Jesus, Jesus had been manifesting to them in his words and in his actions, the kingdom of God, the glory of God, showing them and teaching them what it is for him to be the Messiah, what it is for him to be the Christ, the son of God. He had been teaching them of his glory. But this time, it was unveiled. This time, it was not cloaked in parables. This time, there was not the distraction of miracles. This time, they beheld the full majesty of Christ. They beheld the glory of God as Moses did. Face to face. And they beheld it, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 6, in the face of Jesus Christ. What Moses saw on Mount Sinai, Peter, James, and John saw on the Mount of Transfiguration. Well, they saw it in the face Jesus. Jesus is the manifest glory of God, the radiant manifestation of God in the human form. And what do we know about this glory? What do we know about this glory? What do we know about the glory of God? Well, beloved, there's a few things that we know about the glory of God, even from this text. But even as we study throughout the scriptures, we know these things about the glory of God. First of all, it's a visible glory. It's a visible glory. Jesus came into the world and when he came into the world, his glory was veiled. It was veiled as a baby in Mary's arms. It was veiled. It was always there, but it was veiled. It was veiled as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, as he performed his miracles, as he he talked in parables. His glory was veiled, veiled by the garb of human flesh. But now, for this moment, it's unveiled. And the disciples see it. Because the glory of God, beloved, is not just a theory to be discussed. The glory of God is is not just an anthem to be sung. The glory of God is a sight to behold. It is to be seen. It It should be your heart's desire to see the glory of God. 
Moses saw it. Isaiah saw it. Ezekiel saw it. The Bible tells us in Luke chapter 2 that the shepherds out on the field keeping watch over their flock by night saw it. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 reminds us he saw it. John out on the Isle of Patmos on the Lord's day said he saw it. Do you know in one sense it is all around us? For the Bible says in Psalm chapter, in Psalm 19, that the heavens declare the glory of God. And so in one sense, the glory of God is all around us. If we have eyes to see, if we have a heart to discern that the glory of God is manifested all around us. But that is a, how do we say it? That is a reflection of God's glory. The mountains reflect God's glory. The oceans reflect God's glory. The sun and the moon and the stars reflect God's glory. Isaiah chapter 40, though, tells us that there is coming a day when every mountain shall be made low, the valley shall be exalted, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. Not going to be in the mountains, they're gone. All flesh is going to behold the glory of God. This should be your heart's desire. If you're a Christian this, this, this morning, every day you wake up, Lord. I just want to behold your glory. That's why you long for heaven. Oh, that God would manifest himself in this place in glory should be our heart's desire every week. But even if he doesn't in the clear manifestation of it, our heart's desire if we are Christians is that one day I will behold the glory of God. Because one day I will see him as he is. I will behold him face to face. The glory of God is a visible glory. Is what we long to see with our eyes. Until such time, Peter says that we are to be trusting in his word. Trusting in his word. Trusting in his promises. Knowing that his promise is that we shall one day behold the glory of God. It is a visible manifestation, the glory of God is. It's not just a visible manifestation. It tells us here also that it is an intrinsic glory. It is an intrinsic glory. It is an inherent glory. The glory of God is not something that came unto or came upon Jesus, but rather it is something that was unveiled. It came out of Jesus. It 
came out of Jesus. The glory came from within Christ. Notice that the Bible speaks of a radiant whiteness. You know what whiteness speaks of in the scriptures? Speaks of a holiness. Speaks of a purity. It speaks of sinlessness. Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 18. God says, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Because whiteness speaks of purity. Whiteness speaks of holiness. Whiteness speaks of righteousness. Revelation chapter 7 and verse 14. Speaking of those saints in the presence of the Lamb. It says, they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. They have washed their robes and their robes are a radiant white, holy, pure, spotless, righteous, because They wash them in the blood of Christ. And so we see this glory, this this whiteness, this radiance, it speaks to righteousness. And yet for Christ, this righteousness is inside. He has it inside. It comes from within. Righteousness doesn't come upon Christ. Righteousness comes from within Christ. He is inherently, intrinsically holy. He is inherently right with God. But he's the only one. You and I are not. And if we are going to get this righteousness, this righteousness will not come from within, but this righteousness has to come from without. For us to obtain the glory of God, it is not something that rises up in us. It is something that God bestows upon us. We have to put on these things. For us, it is a righteousness that we have to put on. In Romans chapter 13 and verse 14, we have to put on Christ. Christ doesn't put on Christ. We have to put on Christ. In Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 24, we have to put on the new self. In Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 11, we have to put on the whole armor of God. In Colossians chapter 3 and verse 14, we have to put on love. Christ does not put these on. He doesn't put on holiness. He's already holy. He doesn't put on righteousness. He is already righteousness. He doesn't put on love. But when we put on Christ, he clothes us in his righteousness. He clothes us in his love. It is in Christ and our union with him that we are Right with God. We put on Christ by trusting and believing Christ. 
And when we do, beloved, we become the glory of God for all the world to see. Because you know what they do? They see that you've changed. They see there's something different. Why? Because the glory of God is not only a visible glory, not only an intrinsic glory, it is a transforming glory. Right before their eyes, Jesus is changed. 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 Transfigured. Changed. Right before their eyes. We are not told what color or what shade of clothes he had on before. But when the glory of God was unveiled, Jesus was changed, transformed. This is the nature of the glory of God. It changes us. It changes everything. It changes everyone. You know, Moses was changed. When he came down off the mountain after seeing the glory of God, the Bible says that there was a change in his countenance. He was changed. Isaiah was changed. In Isaiah chapter 6, when he beheld Christ high and lifted up, holy upon his throne, he was changed. Paul was changed. Peter, James, and John were changed. This is the change that the gospel begets in our lives, beloved. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse 4, the Bible says that it is the gospel that is the glory of God. And when the gospel touches your life, you are changed. You're changed. I remember, I remember the first time that um, after I had, um, after the Lord had did a work in my life that was beyond anybody's human description and understanding of what could happen because people, I was far gone. And, and the Lord came and, and renovated Everything inside and out. And I remember the first time I had gone back to where I grew up and I ran into one of my old running buddies. He's actually my roommate for quite a while. So he knew me quite well. And he looked at me and we started talking and he said, man, you changed. There's something different about you. It's beloved when the glory of God that is in the gospel of Jesus Christ, touches your heart, it shows on your face. I I believe that with all of my heart. Your continence changes. You not only got a new attitude, but you got a new way of expressing it. And those who know you best know that's the truth. And so it is. We are changed. We have, when the gospel comes to us, this change, the glory of God that's being wrought in our lives is an inevitable change because the glory of God transformed us. There is no such thing as an untransformed Christian. You changed. You have been changed. You are being changed. 
and you shall forever be changed. You have been changed. Now understand that, that at the moment that the Spirit of God comes and begins to work in your life to bring about the newness of life and you put on Christ, at that moment there is a change. You have a new heart. And it may not begin to manifest itself immediately so that others can see it. But you know in your heart that once you were blind, but now you see. That once you were lost, but now you are found. And you may not be able to explain all the theological intricacies that go have gone on in your life. And you may not be able to open the Bible and explain to everybody how the Spirit has regenerated your heart. And how by faith now you have the justification of God. And now because of your union with Christ, God is inevitably going to sanctify you onto glorification. So that while you're waiting there in the immediate state, you're waiting long term for the eternal glorification of your earthly body you may not be able to say all that but you can say I'm not what I was I'm changed well the glory of God is not just that you have been changed but the glory of God is changing you every day there is something new that the Spirit of God is revealing in your life that needs to be renovated just a little bit. There's something new every day that the Spirit of God is showing you that needs to be brought under the subjection of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Every day, no matter how minute it might be, there is a sense, as the Bible says, that you are going from glory to glory. Because the spirit of Christ is renovating that house stud by stud and nail by nail. You are being changed. Some days it rains and there's not much renovation going on. Seems like the construction workers are taking a break. But believe me, beloved, there's a nail that got put in place somewhere. Every day, there is some change that is happening. Not only, not only have you been changed, not only are we being changed, but the glory of God is the promise that we shall forever be changed. It says in First John. Chapter 3 and verse 2. It has not all been revealed as to what we shall be, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. That is the promise. That is the hope. Do you know what Jesus did for the disciples up on the mountain? He showed them what they would be like. This is your inheritance. These are those who inherit the kingdom of God. They have been eternally forever transfigured and transformed. That's why John can say, 
We don't know all that it's going to be like, but when we, we do know this, that when he comes, we're going to be like that. That's what we're going to be like. Pure holiness, righteousness, radiance of God's light and glory. Suddenly the transfiguration is gone. Suddenly the light is gone. And now, once again, they're walking down the mountain with Jesus. This is the Jesus they have known for the last three years. And they're discussing with themselves, what just happened? How is all this? Oh, my goodness, the kingdom of God is come. But wait a minute, isn't Elijah supposed to come first? These things are all out of order, Jesus. What's happening? Jesus reminds them, as with the prophetic coming of Elijah, who was John the Baptist. The glory comes only by way of the cross. There's a glory that Jesus is going to have. There's a glory that John the Baptist will receive. There's a glory that all those in Christ will receive, but it is not without the suffering. It is not without the cross. And he reminds them, there is a kingdom coming, but it is a kingdom of the cross that leads to the glory. And you don't have the glory unless first you go by way of the cross. Don't miss that, beloved. The disciples did not fully understand until Jesus was raised from the dead. That's when they understood. It's by way of the cross. That Jesus in Philippians chapter 2 reminds us that Jesus came, that he humiliated himself, that he took on the form, the morphe of a servant, that he took on flesh, and that he became obedient unto death, even death on the cross. And it is after obedience unto death, even death on the cross, that the Bible says God highly exalted him. Because the glory comes by way of the cross. And you must be willing, as Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, in verse 8, you must be willing to fight the good fight. You must be willing to keep the faith. Because then there is laid up for you a crown of righteousness. But that glory only comes to those who are willing to keep the faith, to fight the good fight, to go by way of the cross and find and receive the glory of God. Jesus was clothed in righteousness, clothed in majesty. And so too will you and I be if we trust. Trust him. Believe him. Or, as God himself says, listen. Listen to him. Will you listen to Jesus? Will you listen to the Christ this morning? 
where he says, come unto me, all you who are labor, who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come. Lay down your yoke and take my yoke, his yoke of righteousness, his yoke of holiness, his yoke of forgiveness, and find that his, his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Would you listen to him? Listen to him. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, eyes have not seen, you say in your word, nor ears heard, nor has it entered into the heart of humanity all the glory that you have in store for your people. Oh, Lord, we long to see your glory, the manifestation of your brilliance, of your power, of your grace in our lives and in this place and in all eternity. Thank you for opening our eyes this morning just a little bit more and our ears just a little bit more to hear and to see and to behold Christ. Lord, I pray that everyone here is trusting in Jesus. That they have heard your word and your call to listen to him. And they this morning come in repentance of their sins in childlike faith and simply trust in Jesus for their salvation, knowing that there is no other way, there is no other hope, there is no other Savior. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your spirit this morning as he ministers conviction of sin and the comfort of grace to us this morning. Be glorified, be magnified, oh, our great, great and awesome God. In Jesus we pray, amen.